So we're going to continue uh, our study in Revelation this morning. Just a disclaimer, it's not a Christmas message, (laughs) but come Friday night for the Christmas message for, for Christmas Eve. It'll be pretty exciting. We'll be looking at the second coming of Christ on January 1st and 2nd. So that, that's a great way to start the year for sure. So. Also, I uh, wanted to share uh, with you guys uh, Pastor Rich Bailey. He pastors our Elcott uh, campus, uh, and he is semi-retiring, meaning that he's stepping back from being the campus pastor. This is his last uh, Sunday out uh, teaching there. And Rich uh, senior pastored a lot of years before he came to uh, Rocky Mountain Calvary, and then he's going to be coming back to the central campus part-time to do some pastoral care and counseling. And Josh Jaskowski... I said his last name. I don't know if it was correct, but uh, he has been our high school pastor, and he's transitioning into being the new uh, campus pastor. So please pray for the Elkhart campus. God's really blessing that. Uh, More and more people are coming, and it's growing, and God's doing a work on the Eastern Plains. It's, It's pretty cool. So let's pray together. Father, we thank you for our time in your word. Lord, we just thank you for our our city, and thank you for Ellicott. Pray you'd bless Rich uh, this morning, and Josh, and Lord, that you'd meet with us as we study your word and and look at your judgment on Babylon. Holy Spirit, we welcome you into our time together. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, you might want to buckle up a little bit this morning because we're actually going to cover two chapters in Revelation and try to stay on time. But God's dealing with Babylon here in these two chapters. They really go uh, together. Dealing with religious Babylon, which is represented in the harlot. This woman is presented and is called the harlot and is really leading people away from God. And that's how she earned that name. And so the harlot is dealt with in chapter 17. And then the city is destroyed in chapter 18. There's a lot of questions about what exactly is the city of Babylon. Does it simply just represent the the world system? Is it symbolic of hearts that are against God? And the answer is yes, it does represent the world's system, absolutely. And then we go, is it an actual place? Is this a a literal city? And if you read closely chapter 18, it sure seems like it. Because we see a lot of merchandise, we see a lot of business, we see a lot of economy. And there's mourning that takes place over the judgment of the city. That The world actually mourns. It seems that Babylon's become the hub for all things religious, in a bad sense, in false religion, and also government and economy. It seems to be a world-impacting city. Some think that it even could be the ancient city of Babylon rebuilt, and and that's a possibility, I guess, in the future. doesn't seem like things are happening that way now, uh, but the ancient city of Babylon could be rebuilt. Saddam Hussein was going to attempt to do that, and it didn't go uh, very far. With all of the turmoil in modern-day Iraq, the ancient ruins are in a, in a tough uh, spot. Let's jump into chapter 17 and look at verse 1. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked with me, saying to me, Come, and I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters." If you remember last week, the bull judgments were poured out, God's final judgments, and the voice from heaven said, it is done, it is finished. So why do we have two more chapters? 
because God's going into more detail. He's zooming in. He's giving us the close-up look. And one of the seven angels who had the seven bulls came and talked with John and said, I want to show you the judgment specifically of this great harlot. And the harlot is sitting upon many waters with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So the kings of the earth commit fornication with her. Why is she called a harlot? Because throughout the Old Testament, when God's people turned away from the Lord and got into idolatry, God called it spiritual adultery. So the image here of her being a harlot is that she's leading people's hearts away from God. It's not that people during the time of the tribulation are not going to be spiritual. There's a lot of spiritual activity The problem is it's completely wrong. It's the rejection of Christ and the embracing of everything false religions. And she's able to influence the kings of the earth. So you find this spiritual false religious element come in and also this political where the kings of the earth are impacted by her. And it's not just the kings of the earth, but also the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. She's serving up some kind of cocktail that everybody loves. And the world's drinking of this. And they're intoxicated with this rebellion against God and this embracing of all of this weird spiritualism. And it affects the the kings, it affects the leaders, but it also affects the inhabitants of the earth. So he carried me away into the spirit, into the wilderness. In this vision, the, the angel takes John away into the wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. By this point in our study of Revelation, we do know that the beast is the Antichrist. So the woman is riding upon uh, the beast. She's propped up by the beast. The harlot and the beast are together in in a cohort. And the description of the beast is seven heads and ten horns and John will go into more detail on that in just a moment. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. Notice that she looks good. She looks good. She's got purple and scarlet. In the ancient world, these were very precious cloths. Not not everybody was wearing purple and scarlet. It was very expensive Also, she's arrayed with gold and precious stones, a golden cup. How is it oftentimes that false religions look so good? From the outside, they they just look so squeaky clean. A lot of times the buildings are are really nice, and there's the impression of, of really helping one another. And it's that exterior of, man, this is so appealing to my eyes, it's gold, it's scarlet, they, they've got every, everything together. A lot of times in these false religions, the, the places of worship are just, just over the top, these, these temples. People are drawn in by what they see, but the only problem with the harlot and false religion is what's inside the cup. It's not so good. It's full of abominations and filthiness. So even though this harlot looked good, what was in her cup was abominations to the Lord. This filthiness to, to the Lord. 
when you examine how do I know if something is true or not, how do I know if it's a, a false religion or not, you really have to look about what do they teach about Jesus? Who do they believe Jesus to be? And false religions will get it wrong on the identity of Jesus, Jesus being God. Jesus dying for our sins and, and rising again, and they'll teach a, a false gospel. In verse 15, and on her forehead a name was written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots, and the abomination of the earth. This, this was upon her forehead was written. Contrast this with the 144,000 who have God's name written upon their forehead. Upon her forehead is Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and the abomination of the earth. She, she's got influence upon others in this spiritual adultery. History tells us that some prostitutes in ancient Rome would actually wear their name upon their forehead. And so this picture of her being the harlot, she's got her name written upon her forehead. The Bible could be summed up in the tale of two cities, Babylon and Jerusalem. Jerusalem's the city of God. Babylon is the city of rebellion. We see the beginning of Babylon in Genesis chapter 10. One language, what do they do with this one language? They want to rebel against God. They want to reach God on their own efforts through their pride and their arrogance. And Nimrod is the builder of Babylon. That's quite a name, Nimrod. I've done a lot of baby dedications. No boys named Nimrod, right? <laughs> what does Nimrod mean? It means we will rebel. And Babylon began with this rebellion against God. God humbled them and gave many languages and spread them forth. We know Nebuchadnezzar, he expanded the reach of Babylon, the Babylonian empire. And in that empire was a lot of false worship and rejection of God. They raised up a group of virgins simply to be temple prostitutes. That gives you an idea of how dark Babylon was. Daniel was one who stood strong in the midst of the wickedness of Babylon. In verse 6, I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. What the harlot and those that are joined to the harlot, the kings and the nations of the world, they love to drink the blood of Christians. Not literally. It's, it's not that they were drinking the blood of, of Christians, but they loved to kill Christians and it was intoxicating to them like an alcoholic beverage. It's like, oh man, they gave them a high to kill Christians. Isn't that amazing? That's how hostile they got towards Christ. In this re rejection of who Christ is and Christ's followers, they wanted Christians dead. They wanted nothing to do with believers. And, and they were drunk with the blood of, of the saints. In verse 7, But the angel said to me, Why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. John's here in amazement. John's here wondering, what does this all mean? What, what's this woman upon the beast and the ten horns and the seven heads? And, and the angel goes, hey, this is simple. Let me explain it to you. And aren't you glad what's confusing to us is simple to God? God's like, let me, let me clear this up for you. So the angel is going to explain the beast, the harlot, the horns, the head. Verse 8, the beast that you, that you saw was and is not and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. 
The beast is the Antichrist. The beast represents the nature of the Antichrist, this animal-like creature that's set on destroying Christians. But ultimately, the beast is going to face perdition, which is destruction. And those who dwell on the earth will marvel whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world when they see the beast that was and is not and yet is. The world's going to marvel when they see the ultimate destruction of the Antichrist. They didn't see that one coming. Specifically, those who don't know Christ, whose names are not written in the book of life. So you may be asking, well, what's the book of life? And how do I get my name written in the book of life? This is the most important reservation you're ever going to make. It's whether you go to heaven or hell. And the reason that you get into the book of life is through faith. It's the only way that you can get to repent of sins and to believe that Jesus is God, that he died and rose again, asking him to take control of your life, asking him to be the Lord of your life. Then your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. And God knows he's from the foundations of the world. He knows those who are going to believe in him. That, that's mentioned here. Not that people don't have a choice, but God knows the choice that they're going to make. He knew that they would reject Christ and their name wouldn't be written in the book of life. Interesting description of the beast. We, we see this counterfeit of Jesus. The beast was and is not and yet is. Similar language that describes Jesus. In Revelations thirteen three, it says that the Antichrist had what was like a mortal wound. And the world thought that he had been killed and came back to, to life. And so this is why he's described as he was and is not, but yet is, that he had this recovery from what seemed to be like a mortal wound. Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. As we've been studying Revelation it's actually surprised me how many times we see the reference to the ten horns and the seven heads. And God tells us that the horns are kings. And of those kings, there's going to be seven that stand out of the ten. We did a Wednesday night in-depth on this in Revelation 13. If you missed it, you want to go to the website and, and take a listen but it's also mentioned two times very specifically in the book of Daniel that there's going to be these ten kings that come together, these, these ten leaders. And out of those ten leaders, seven will become predominant. Out of those seven, one is going to be the Antichrist. So all the way back in the book of Daniel, then several times in the book of Revelation, God tells us this. So this is a yet futuristic prophecy. It's, it's unfulfilled. So we should be looking at future events going, there is going to be a moment in time where 10 kings are going to come together and are going to have world-dominating influence. And of those 10 kings, those 10 nations, then seven are going to be predominant. And out of that seven, one is going to be the Antichrist. I find that to be encouraging. You're like, how is that encouraging? Because God knows and has already predicted it. He knows and he's, he's already set that emotion all the way back in the book of Daniel. He's saying this is how it's going to go down with uh, the Antichrist. So here in verse 9, we see this reference to the seven heads and the, 
seven heads are seven mountains. And the mountains speak of governments and kingdoms and kings. So these seven, the seven of the ten, are really strong. There's some that look at this description of being the seven mountains that the seven kings are going to come out of Rome. Because the nickname for Rome is the city of seven hills. So they go, because seven mountains are mentioned here, then they're coming out of Rome. There's even a lot of Bible commentators that have looked at verse 9 and said, well, it's going to come out of the Roman Catholic Church. I think that's a little bit of a stretch. A little bit of a stretch there to to read in the Roman Catholic Church in in, in verse 9. What we do know, I think, safe biblical interpretation is the seven mountains speaks of seven kingdoms that are strong. And that, that message is throughout Daniel and, and Revelation. Clear as mud? <laughs> Verse 10. There are also seven kings. So this seven mountains are seven kings. So God tells us specifically what the seven mountains are. Five have fallen, one is, and the other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must continue a short time. So of these seven kings... Five are going to fall, one's going to continue for a short time, but yet there's one more to come. The beast that was and is not is himself also the eighth and is of the seven and is going to perdition. So of these seven leaders, the Antichrist is one of those and he's going to emerge out of them to be the eighth. Just to make sure I'm not making all this up, look at verse 12. It's worth highlighting. The ten horns which you saw are ten kings, which have received no kingdom as of yet, but they shall receive authority for one hour as kings with the beast. So very clearly the ten horns are going to be ten kings. These are of one mind, and they will give their power and authority to the beast. Isn't this amazing, the unity these kings have coming underneath the leadership of the Antichrist. Largely, the kingdom of darkness is united. How much more so should should we be united? Because we know Christ, because we're the children of God. He's our Father. We have the Spirit of God inside of us. So to endeavor to keep the spirit of unity. But there are things worth dividing over, and it's the truth of Scripture. It's those things that are essential But there's a lot of things that aren't essential. They're non-essentials that we shouldn't be dividing over as believers. Why is our unity so important? Jesus prayed for it in John 17 so that the world would see that the Father sent the Son through our unity. The way that we love each other, hopefully people can see the reality of, of who God is. So they're united around darkness. Let's be united around Christ. These will make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them. (laughs) Sometimes I really wish for a lot more details in the Scripture. These kings, the Antichrist, are going to make war with with Jesus, and Jesus is going to win. Was there any question there that Christ Christ was going to win? Sometimes when you're watching a football game, you're like, there's no question who's going to win here, right? Sometimes when siblings are fighting, you're like, I know who's going to win this one. <laughs> Obviously, this, this sibling has the, the upper hand. And, and Jesus is going to clearly win this one. They're going against the lamb, and, and the lamb also happens to be 
the Lord of lords, the King of kings, and those who are with him are called chosen and faithful. It's important as we reflect on the birth of Christ this week, his first coming, to also reflect on his second coming. That Jesus is the lamb who was slain for our sins in his humanity, but also he's God who rose from the dead, who's coming to set all things right. We know what the water represents that the harlot's on. Then he said to me, the waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. So the water represents the people of the world, the nations of the world. And the ten horns which you saw on the beast, these will hate the harlot, make her desolate and naked, eat her flesh, and burn her with fire. So the horns, these ten kings, ultimately turn on the harlot. They initially embrace the harlot, this this false religion, but then they destroy the harlot. And this is the problem with Satan. This is the problem with sin, is there's pleasure in sin at the beginning, isn't there? But it'll destroy you. It'll eat you up. The the price tag of sin is, is very high. Verse 17, For God has put it into their hearts to fulfill his purpose, to be of one mind, and give their kingdom to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. So ultimately, God is the one who's working in these 10 kings to bring them into a place of unity and allegiance to the Antichrist so that his words can be fulfilled. If you think about the book of Revelation like a story, maybe at this point, pick up the book of Revelation and and read it like you would a, a story keeping in mind that it it is absolute truth, isn't this a brilliant way for God to set up the second coming of Jesus Christ by showing us what darkness really looks like, by showing us what the Antichrist looks like? So God's allowing the Antichrist to come on the scene. God's allowing believers to be killed. He's showing us how bad it is apart from him, and that contrasts how wonderful his ruling and reigning is it. Christ comes in after this, this wickedness of the Antichrist, and this is all part of, of God's plan. This humbles us because God's doing things in the nations of the world that we don't understand. But we're encouraged because God's in control, and he knows exactly what, what he's doing and how things will fulfill his plan. Verse 18, and the woman that you saw is the great city which reigns over the king's of the earth. This is interesting. The harlot is the great city, Babylon. So, it does seem like Babylon is a place. It does seem a place as well. These things are coming down having great earth was illuminated with after the destruction of, of the harlot, here comes a, another angel with great authority. As the harlot is destroyed, also the economic peace of Babylon is going to be destroyed. And I think all three are intertwined with Babylon. You've got the economic piece, you've got the false religion piece, you've got the government piece, and this alliance with ten kings, and it's all destroyed. The angel comes with God's authority, God's messenger. 
comes with God's glory. And he cried mightily with a loud voice, saying, Babylon, the great, is fallen, is fallen, and has become a dwelling place of demons, a prison for every foul spirit, and a cage for every unclean and hated bird. Babylon's strong. Babylon's mighty, even to the point where they don't think that they can fall. But in one hour, God destroys Babylon. Just in one hour, with one angel, is able to humble this great city, Babylon. After Babylon's destroyed, it becomes a holding tank for demons. Lots of demonic activity there. And God's just like, we're just going to cage all you guys right here. Verse 3, for all the nations have drunk the wine of the wrath of her fornication. The kings of the earth have committed fornication with her. And the merchants of the earth have become rich through the abundance of her luxury. So the kings embrace Babylon's influence. The kings embrace this false religion and this rejection of Christ. And they commit fornication with her. And the merchants of the earth have become rich through the abundance of her luxury. So those selling goods have become rich through Babylon. Babylon is in the economy in such a way that all those who are selling goods have great profit, have great abundance through Babylon. Well, maybe Babylon's Amazon. I don't know. Maybe it's the the Amazon of of today. In verse 4, and I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins and lest you receive of her plagues. So there's believers at this time, those that have known Christ as their Savior during the tribulation. I believe that Christians have already been raptured. The church has already been taken up to heaven. And this is those that have been saved during that time. Either way, you have God's people that are called not to be part of Babylon, to, to be separate from, from Babylon. For her sins have reached to heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Render her just as she has rendered to you, and repay her double according to her works. In the cup which she has mixed, mixed double for her. So as she has made this cocktail, this cocktail of rebellion against God and false religion, then God says, go ahead and render to her just her due. Give her double of what she has, has earned. In Exodus 22, verses 4 through 9, we see this principle of double restitution that was required in the Old Testament for theft. If you, if you stole $5, you'd have to repay 10 If you stole one oxen, you would repay two. And so in this principle of justice, God is, is giving to Babylon her just reward. In verse 7, in the measure that she has glorified herself and lived luxuriously, in the same measure give her torment and sorrow. For she says in her heart, I sit as a queen, and I am no widow, and I will not see sorrow. So we see Babylon is very affluent. There's, there's lots of luxury that is given to her. And to the same degree of luxury, there's going to be torment and sorrow. And notice the heart condition of Babylon says, I'm a queen. I'm no widow, widow speaking of having financial needs, and I will not see sorrow. Church, brothers and sisters in Christ, we, may we be careful to not make the same mistake as, as Babylon. Whether we realize it or not, we live in luxury. When we look at the rest of the world as Americans, we live in financial luxury. 
And you're like, man, I, I don't feel like I'm living in financial luxury. You know, have you, have you seen my financial struggle and my, my difficulty? But when you compare it to the rest of the world, I think we would agree that, that we have, have luxury. And with finances, if we're not careful, it can get us to a place of prideful arrogance. Now, there's nothing wrong with money. Money is a tool. It's a resource. God would want us to learn how to manage it for his glory. But our attitude towards money is where the problem can be. Scripture says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. We're also encouraged not to trust in uncertain riches. I mean, riches can very quickly get wings and fly away. We've seen that throughout history. It's a humbling reality. You could spend so much of your life trying to prepare and save and be wise and manage and put money into a 401k and right as you need it, the stock market crashes, right? There's the uncertainty of riches. It's a bad place for us to put our money in. And if we have this attitude that we go, well, because I have this much money, no sorrow is going to come into my life. Money is my security. Money is my safety blanket, and it's going to keep me from having difficulty. That was the attitude of Babylon. We've got so much, how could we have sorrow? How could we ever have financial need? But in reality, it doesn't take too much to even drain the greatest resources. So our trust can't be in money. We, we want to be wise with money, but our trust has to be in the Lord. This is why giving is so important, as God leads us to, to be cheerful givers. Because giving frees our hearts from greed. Giving reminds us, Lord, you're the provider. I'm trusting in you. I'm trusting in, in your faithfulness. When we think of raising kids, one of the things we want to instill in our children is generosity. It's, it's not all about you, right? God's blessed you so that you can be a blessing. And, and even more so, God grows us. He grows our hearts as, as we give. So we don't want to adopt this same attitude that Babylon had towards, towards money. And verse 8, Therefore her plagues will come in one day, death and mourning and famine, and she'll be utterly burned with fire, for strong is the Lord God who judges her. Here's the response of the world to Babylon. The kings of the earth who committed fornication and lived in luxury with her will weep and lament for her when they see the smoke of her burning, standing at a distance for the fear of her torment, saying, Alas, alas, that great city Babylon, that mighty city, for in one hour your judgment has come. Isn't it interesting what the world mourns over in the book of Revelation, in the wrath of the Lamb? We don't see the world mourning over their sin, even though they clearly know that God is judging them. Instead, when they are confronted with the wrath of God, they get angry at God and blaspheme God. But when you mess with their money, they're sad. When you mess with their luxury, they're sad. And it really reveals what they're ultimately worshiping. They're worshiping stuff. And when the stuff gets messed with, then they're at a place where there's a broken heart. And it's a hard question for us to, to answer. What do I mourn about? Do I mourn about my sin before God? Or do I mourn about the fact that I've lost comfort or I've lost finances? What would I really be more sad about? You know, losing 
half my income, all my income, or my sin before God. And obviously, there's some real struggles with, with the loss of income, but hopefully we go, man, more than anything else, I want to be right with God, and I want to mourn over my sin. In verse 11, the merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her, for no one buys their merchandise anymore. So everybody selling on Amazon is in trouble. Now, don't misunderstand. I'm not saying that Amazon is Babylon, but it's a clear indicator. A lot of economy goes through Amazon. A lot of economy goes through Babylon. Imagine if Amazon was down for just one week. It would get the attention of the world. I can already hear the crying, the weeping, the wailing. I I can't get stuff delivered to my door. What am I going to (laughs) do? Especially this week, right? Going into Christmas, it would affect Christmas. So, so all those selling are like, what are we going to do? We, we can't sell through, through Babylon anymore. All of these different industries are affected. Merchandise of gold and silver. So jewelry, precious stones and pearls, fine linen and purple, silk and scarlet, clothing, every kind of citron wood and every kind of object of ivory, every kind of object of most precious wood, bronze, iron, and marble, home furnishings, And yes, even essential oils are affected. (laughs) And cinnamon and incense and fragrant oil and frankincense. doTERRA can no longer sell. Oh, what in the world's going on today, right? Wine and oil, fine flour and wheat, cattle and sheep. Whole Foods, Trader Joe's and natural grocers can no longer sell as well. Notice it's not just normal oil. It's fine oil. It's fine flour. It's fine wheat. It's organic wheat. It's cattle and sheep. And you might say, man, cattle and sheep don't seem like a luxury. Again, spend time in a lot of other areas of the world. If you're lucky, maybe you'll have meat once a month. It's a real special thing to have meat. What's not affected in this list? Beans and rice. This is all the luxuries of life that are affected in this list. Why is everybody so sad? Because they're they're losing their comforts. Horses and chariots. This is the automotive industry. Tesla takes a dive here. And bodies and souls of men. Isn't this humbling right here? And this shows the really wicked nature of the economic reality of Babylon is they're willing to sell people for profit. There was merchants that were selling people. Human trafficking is a huge deal. In our world, in the United States of America, people are being sold as as sex slaves, sold for, for labor. And there's people in the world that will say, you know what? I am going to profit financially by enslaving you and selling you. And there's some that even write that there's more money that's being made off of human trafficking than drugs because once drugs is used, it's gone. But you can sell someone over and over and over and over and over again and we start to see the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. That someone would, would sell a person in order to make more, make more money. 
Verse 14, the fruit that your soul longed for has gone from you, and all the things which are rich and splendid have gone from you, and you shall find them no more at all. The merchants of these things who became rich by her will stand at a distance for fear of her torment, weeping and wailing and saying, alas, alas, the great city that was clothed in fine linen, purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls. For in one hour, such great riches came to nothing. Every shipmaster, all who travel by ship, sailors, and as many as trade on the sea stood at a distance and cried out when they saw the smoke of the burning, saying, What is this great city? They threw dust on their heads and cried out, weeping and wailing, and saying, Alas, alas, that great city in which all who had ships on the sea became rich by her wealth. For one hour she made desolate. So the merchants are mourning because they have no way to make money any longer. The ship routes are affected. All of those who would bring the goods all over the world. So it's pretty clear to me anyway, when you look at Revelation 18, that it does seem to be a place. Babylon does seem to be a place that a lot of goods go out from and the merchants of the world sell through. You may have noticed throughout this chapter that those mourning are doing it from a distance and they're sad because they've lost money, but they're not sad for those who have died in Babylon. And that's really the world's mourning. The, world, the world's upset because they've lost a comfort, not because they really care about people. As the church, it's the exact opposite. Hopefully when we see people in disaster and we see people in need, our heart goes out to them because we care for them and we love them and we don't mourn from a distance, but we go in. With all the tornadoes that have happened in Kentucky and through that region of the world, I was listening to an NPR radio broadcast about it and the, the radio broadcaster was saying, there's so many Christian ministries here helping out. And I was like, that's so cool. This was in the first few days of things happening. And they said there's FEMA's response, but there's all of these Christian ministries. And it just must have killed liberal media to say that, right? <laughs> but they couldn't deny it. There, there's, there's Christians that are here that are helping. And that's the heart of Christ. Like we don't run away from disaster. We run into disaster because we're not just mourning for ourselves. Hopefully we're mourning uh, for them. Verse 20, rejoice over her, O heaven, and you holy apostles and prophets, for God has avenged you on earth. So the world is mourning, but heaven is rejoicing. Heaven is seeing this just justice that is coming upon Babylon. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, thus with violence, the great city Babylon shall be thrown down and shall not be found anymore. So God in an hour is able to humble Babylon and, and throws Babylon into the sea. Babylon's also a place of music and culture and art. The sound of harpists, musicians, flutists, and trumpets shall not be heard in you anymore, nor craftsmen of any craft shall be found in you anymore. And the sound of millstones shall not be heard in you anymore. Completely destroyed. Verse 23, the light of the lamp shall not shine in you anymore, and the voice of the bridegroom and the bride shall not be heard in you anymore. No lights going on in Babylon, no more weddings taking place in Babylon. For your merchants were great men of the earth, for by your sorcery 
all the nations were deceived. This witchcraft, this demonic activity, the nations of the world were deceived in this false religion. And in her was found the blood of the prophets, the saints, and all who were slain on the earth, all the Christians that were killed through Babylon. Here's the question for us as we go into communion, and it's this, is, is what causes us to mourn? What is it that we're, we're really sad about? And is it financial in nature? Is it economic in nature? You know, are, are we super bummed if our car gets totaled in a car accident? And then, oh, I'm so, I'm so bummed out about that. And yeah, yeah, that's difficult, but is, is that the greatest list of my, of my sorrows? You know, if we were to, to lose our house, would that be the end of the world? Man, I, I lost my house. My, my house means everything to me. If you lost investments and the stock market's doing its roller coaster thing, and how do you feel when it's up? Woohoo! Feel pretty good. How do you feel when it's down? Oh, man. Like, what, what am I going to do, right? And then what's our attitude towards sin? Oh, it's not that big of a deal. Not, not, you know, no worries. Or maybe we're not really even very convicted at all. Sometimes those around us are more convicted about our sin than we are. We're like, man, it really disturbs me. I care for you. I love you. But, but we haven't got to that place that we're broken over our sin. The psalm says, a broken and contrite spirit God will not despise. When we're broken over sin, that's a sweet aroma to the Lord. That's what he longs for. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be be comforted. As we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He resists the proud. We see the proud in Babylon, but he gives grace to the humble. So as we come to the communion table, there's elements here in the front and elements in the back. Let's let's take a moment. Let's not allow communion to just be a a tradition, a box that we check and, oh, this is what we do at the end of, of service once a month. But to remember, we're to do this in remembrance of Christ, that Jesus, you love me. You, you took the price for my sin upon the cross. You were broken. Your blood was shed. And to examine ourselves, Lord, would you show me areas of sin in my life? Would you show me what my true priorities? And confess those sins to the Lord. So as we take of communion, find a quiet place to, in the sanctuary and just wait and pray with the Lord. And then as you have prayed and you're ready, celebrate communion. And isn't it wonderful in communion that you've got to lift your head? And God's the lifter of our head. The only way you can take communion and not lift your head is if you use a straw. And that's just cheating and awkward. Right? You're, you're the only one in the sanctuary, right? Like, I'm so ashamed. I can't take communion, right? God, God's the lifter of our head. As we humble ourselves before him, don't leave here in condemnation because we haven't understood the work of Christ if, if we leave in condemnation. There's an appropriate place for mourning, an appropriate place for brokenness, and then there's also an appropriate place of accepting God's forgiveness, believing in the blood of Jesus that he's forgiven us of our sins, and walking in the forgiveness of God. I'm forgiven by the Lord, not because I earn it or deserve it, 
because Jesus paid the price for me. If you don't know Christ as your Savior, you haven't trusted him. You're like, I don't even understand what this communion represents. Is trust Jesus for salvation. There'll be a ministry team over on the sides and as you come to take communion, find one of us and let us know, I want to receive Christ as my Savior. I want my name written in the Lamb's book of life. I've never repented of sin and believed Jesus was God, that he died and rose again. There's only one payment of sin, and that's Christ. And as we believe, then we receive his forgiveness. Those listening online, if you'd like to receive Christ, you can do so with the chats, the comments. You can cry out to the Lord right where you're at. But so important to trust Christ for salvation. Would you stand with me and let's pray and we'll move into communion together. Jesus, we thank you for paying the price for our sin, paying the price that we could never pay, that you love us. And God, would you help us to line our priorities up with what's important to you? And we live in a material world, and it's so easy to fall in love with things that we can see, to think that our security is in finances. Lord, but we know our security is in you. You're our refuge. Would you search us? Would you know us? Would you reveal areas of our heart that we need to get right with you this morning? And then may we truly enjoy your forgiveness. May you be the lifter of our head. Areas of our life where we're struggling to receive your forgiveness this morning, may, may we receive your forgiveness afresh. In Jesus' name, amen.